So last Sunday we finished up a, uh, a series on the book of Ruth, and we learned that Ruth's story of redemption is really our story of redemption. We learned that Ruth, having been redeemed by her marriage to Boaz, bore a son named Obed who would continue the lineage of Abraham, a, a lineage that includes the house of David, the same lineage that would produce our Redeemer, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we move forward this morning, uh, we're going to discuss another significant woman in the Bible. Um, there are many significant women in the Bible whose stories of redemption and steadfast faith in God show us, you and me, the larger picture of God's perfect plan for his people. And so in the book of 1 Samuel, there's another story of such a woman who possesses those enduring qualities. A woman who was come to be known as the woman of sorrows, whose hard life might have driven her down a much different path, a path of bitterness and hardness of heart, except that she had this magnificent faith and trust in her God. Her name is Hannah, and we're going to look at her story this morning uh, because her story, once again, like Ruth, is our story. And so 1 Samuel, the first chapter, the first verse begins, there once was a man who lived in Ramathaim, and he was descended from the old Zuth family in the Ephraim Hills. His name was Elkanah. He was connected with the Zeus from Ephraim through his father Jeroham, his grandfather Elihu, and his great-grandfather Tohu. And he had two wives. The first was Hannah. The second was Penina. Penina had children. Hannah did not. And every year, this man went from his hometown up to Shiloh to worship and offer a sacrifice to the God of the angel armies. Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, served as the priests of God there in the temple. And when Elkanah sacrificed, he passed helpings from the sacrificial meal around to his wife, Penina, and all her children, but he always gave a, an especially generous helping to Hannah because he loved her so much and because God had not given her children. It was his compensation prize, his, his uh, offering to her to try and ease her suffering. But her rival wife, Penina, taunted her cruelly rubbing it in and never letting her forget that God had not given her children. And this went on year after year. Every time she went to the sanctuary of God, she could expect to be taunted by Peninnah. Hannah was reduced to tears and she had no appetite even for the generous portions that her husband gave her at dinner. And her husband Elkanah said, Oh, Hannah, why are you crying? Why aren't you eating? Why are you so upset? Am I not of more worth to you than ten sons? I say that to Angela all the time. 
So Hannah ate. Then she pulled herself together, slipped away quietly, and she entered the sanctuary. And the priest, Eli, was on duty at the entrance to God's temple in his customary seat. Crushed in soul, Hannah prayed to God and cried and cried inconsolably. And then she made a vow. Oh, God of the angel armies, if you'll take a good hard look at my pain. If you'll quit neglecting me and go into action for me by giving me a son, I'll give him completely, unreservedly to you. I'll set him apart for a life of holy discipline. It so happened that as she continued in prayer before God, Eli was watching her closely. Hannah was praying in her heart silently, and her lips moved, but no sound was heard. Eli jumped to the conclusion that she was drunk. So if you pray silently at the rail, look out. He approached her and said, you're drunk. How long do you plan to keep this up? Sober up, woman. And Hannah said, oh, no, sir, please. I'm a woman hard used. I haven't been drinking, not a drop of wine or beer. The only thing I've been pouring out is my heart. Pouring it out to God. Don't for a minute think that I'm a bad woman. It's because I'm so desperately unhappy and in such pain that I've stayed here so long. And Eli answered her, go in peace and may the God of Israel give you what you have asked of him. Think well of me and pray for me, she said, and she went on her way. Then she ate heartily, her face radiant. Up before dawn, they worshipped God and returned home to Ramah. Elkanah slept with Hannah, his wife, and God began making the necessary arrangements in response to what she had asked. Before the year was out, Hannah had conceived and given birth to a son. She named him Samuel, explaining I asked God for him. So Panina had children and Hannah had none. And for Panina, her success at bearing children placed her in a position of power and strength. Because from her womb, the continuation of the family line proceeded. Her position in the family was secure and she might even have been perceived as blessed had she not been such a mean-spirited, unkind woman. She taunted Hannah about Hannah's inability to have children. She was unkind to her and used her position as the family matriarch to her full advantage, taking every opportunity to make Hannah feel even smaller and more insignificant than she already did. Instead of being kind, and benevolent to her weaker counterpart, Panina chose to use her power for wickedness. So I pause here and I just ask the question. Don't raise your hand and acknowledge in front of everybody, but do you know people like Panina? Do you know people who use their power to make themselves look even better in front of those who have no power. 
See, those who seem to have everything a person could ever need or want in the world, money, fame, title, power, but they don't seem to be satisfied with having it all. So instead of being content and grateful for all they've been given, they set about elevating themselves above those who don't have as much by pushing and kicking them even further down at every opportunity. Do you know folks like this? The world seemingly has no shortage of those kind of people. See, Hannah's barrenness put her in an inferior position within the Jewish family structure. Although her husband, Elkanah, loved her deeply, she could not help but be unhappy at her situation. And Panina's unkindness piled on top of her own grief was just more than Hannah could bear. And her situation was made all the more uncomfortable whenever the family would make their pilgrimage to visit the temple in Shiloh, Penina would pour on the taunting during those times and Hannah would be driven into a deep depression and despair. And in her despair, Hannah turned to the one place, the one place she could go for hope and for help. She cried out to God about her circumstances and she promised the Lord, that if he would just give her a son, she would dedicate her son to God as, as a Nazarite, a man who is totally set apart to serve God. And so on one of these trips to the temple, Hannah endures this typical taunting from her sister wife and steals away into the temple to pray. And while she's praying, the priest, Eli, sees her earnestly praying in her grief. She prays a long time silently from her heart, mouths the words of her distressed prayer to God, and Eli confronts her thinking that she must be drunk to carry on like that. And he tells her to sober up. And he jumps to conclusions. And even when she explains, oh, no, sir, please, I'm a woman hard used. I haven't been drinking, not a drop. The only thing I've been pouring out is my heart. Don't think I'm a bad person. It's, it's because I'm so desperately unhappy and I'm in such pain that I have stayed here praying for so long. There's a lesson in that passage for us, I think. We shouldn't assume, like Eli, that we know people's circumstances. We shouldn't prejudge why people do what they do. And when we jump to conclusions, we usually get it wrong. Making assumptions about a person based on their circumstances or even the way they cope with those circumstances it often leads us to the incorrect conclusion and by default leads us to the incorrect remedy or response. See, the truth is we aren't defined by our circumstances. Our, our circumstances do not define who we are. The only thing that defines who you are, who we are, is our relationship with Jesus Christ. That's it. Who we are in Christ is who we really are, and that's the only us that God sees when He looks at us. 
And so after Hannah explains herself to Eli, he, he finally gets it. And he tells her, go in peace and may the God of Israel give you what you have asked of him. So the priest realizes his error in judgment and gives her instead of condemnation, he gives her a blessing. Oh, that we would be quicker to bless than we are to condemn. He doesn't give her a blessing from himself. From, it's not Eli's blessing. He gives her a, ble a blessing from God himself. A, a promise from God. Her, her vow and God's blessing create this covenant relationship between God and Hannah. A covenant relationship that involves trust and faith. And those qualities are enough to change Hannah's disposition from despair to hope. That's the remarkable thing about the hope that God brings into a set of circumstances. The, the joy we experience is a result of the faith and the hope not of the realization of the desired outcome. You see, Hannah is instantly content at the mere existence of the covenant. Even though she's still in her barrenness for now, the covenant with God is the thing that brings joy, not the fulfillment of our every desire, but the covenantal relationship where we know that the God that we can trust, the God that we can worship, the God who cares for us has heard our prayer. And that God has our highest good in mind. That God wants to be in relationship with us. And that alone causes joy. And so the Lord answers Hannah's prayer. She has a son and she names him Samuel, whose name means asked of God. And you recall that Hannah vowed to give her son up to God if he would but give her a son. And so when Samuel is old enough, she takes him to the temple and she gives him over to serve with Eli in the temple. So she and Eli worship together. And during that time of worship, Hannah prays this beautiful prayer. She says, I'm bursting with God news. I'm walking on air. I'm laughing at my rivals. I'm dancing my salvation. Nothing and no one is holy like God. No rock mountain like our God. Don't dare talk pretentiously. Not a word of boasting ever. For God knows what's going on. He takes the measure of everything that happens. The weapons of the strong are smashed to pieces while the weak are infused with fresh strength. The well-fed are out begging in the streets for crusts, while the hungry are getting second helpings. The barren woman has a house full of children, while the mother of many is bereft. God brings death and God brings life, brings down to the grave and raises up. God brings poverty and God brings wealth. He lowers, he also lifts up. He puts poor people on their feet again. He rekindles burned out lives with fresh hope, restoring dignity and respect to their lives, gives them a place in the sun. For the very structures of earth are God's. He has laid out his operations on a firm foundation. 
He protectively cares for his faithful friends step by step. But he leaves the wicked to stumble in the dark. No one makes it in this life by sheer muscle. God's enemies will be blasted out of the sky, crashed in a heap and burned. God will set things right all over the earth. He'll give strength to his king. He'll set his anointed on top of the world. I wonder if Eli struggled to keep up with that prayer. The high priest of the temple and his little Jewish housewife praying a mighty prayer to God, a prayer of thanksgiving, a, a prayer that lays it out like it is in the kingdom. And in Hannah's prayer, God is the defender and the helper of the weak. Hannah represents all of those in the world who are weak, weak in circumstances, weak in finances, weak in spirit, weak in the sight of other people, the downtrodden, the homeless, the least and the lost in the world view. Panina, she represents the strong in the world, those in and of the world who have everything, everything except compassion, everything except love for their fellow man, everything except kindness and decency and mercy, the strong in the world who often mock the weak. But God hears. God hears and He rescues. God rescues the Hannahs of the world. God rescues those who are in need and know that they need God. See, Hannah's prayer admonishes the arrogance of the haughty and the proud. She's not speaking hateful words. She's just telling the truth in love. She says the weapons of the strong are smashed to pieces while the weak are infused with fresh strength. See, Hannah's faith allows her to understand that her weakness is God's strength. The acknowledgement of our own weakness makes room for God to step in and do what only God can do. And finally, in Hannah's story, we see that God is a God of compassion. God's heart does not reject or despise the human desires of our hearts. In fact, many of the desires of our hearts are placed there by God himself through the power of the Holy Spirit. Hannah's desire, her life long desire for a child was obviously part of God's plan for her and for us. If she had had many children like Panina, would she have been so desperate as to cry out to God and vow to give her only son over to serve God? Would she have entered into a covenant relationship with God if having a child came easily to her. Many of the desires and the passions of our hearts are part of God's design to move us into his greater purpose for our lives, into our calling, into our ministry, into service of the kingdom, things that we do because he put them on our heart for his glory and also for our highest good. 
See, God doesn't chastise Hannah for being unhappy. 1 Timothy 6, 6 tells us, of course, there's great gain in godliness combined with contentment, but it doesn't mean that discontentment and sorrow with unmet human desires is necessarily sinful in God's eyes. See, God knows where we are in our human condition because, well, He's been there. He knows that hope Deferred makes a heart sick. That's Proverbs 13, 12. And he invites his people to bring our prayers and our petitions to him. There's a whole book of sorrowful complaining. It's called Lamentations. God doesn't mind our discontentment. As long as we understand the solution to the discontentment, the hope comes from Jesus Christ. See, God uses our weakness to accomplish great things. And so Hannah's son, Samuel, grows up to be a great man. He's the last of the judges of the Jewish nation. He's the prophet who anointed and advised the first two kings of Israel. Through Hannah's weakness, through our weakness, God is glorified. All of his experienced desires that just will not be satisfied. And all of us undergo trials and experience these circumstances that cause us great pain. Many times these things occur and we simply don't understand them. Why is this happening? But God knows what he's doing. And even when we can't see it, he can. There's a universal truth in the kingdom of God that says that nothing God speaks into the world returns to him void. Nothing, no experience, no pain, not a single teardrop is ever wasted in God's kingdom. Trust in God is never, ever misplaced. And so trust him. Praise him. Before the storm in the storm, through the storm, after the storm, to God be the glory, great things He has done. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.